Richard Bale has had a storied career working for, amongst others, the London buses and major American banks in the city, as well as working for recovery providers on the supplier side. He tells some stories of big incidents that he's lived through and some of the lessons he's learned as a result. There's an interesting mix of the big picture, lessons we can take away and apply broadly in terms of our strategies and plans, as well as the fine details of what helps and what can go wrong. One of our regular questions in this season of the BCP cast is to find out how our interviewee regards the difference between incidents and crises. At what point does something not so serious become something seriously threatening? And at what point should you take action? Perhaps due to his experience working in large public sector services and major banks, Richard's take on this is a little different to some of our other guests. Basically, you've got a a spectrum of events. So at the base level, you've got problems, issues. You've got the printer that's run out of paper. It's a problem. Is it an impactful one? Well, no, unless you happen to be uh, running off something for a presentation to your, your board in the next 10 minutes. So those type of events, they have a local impact. You have standard operating procedures that deal with it. It's your part of your BAU. As you step up from that, then you should have your emergency procedures, which are dealing with the health and safety type events, you know, the fire evacs and things like that. So it's a different level of problem, but it's still part of BAU. Everybody recognises there is a real need to do that as part of your duty of care to your staff. Most organisations should have those in place. Going on from that, the thing that you should really have prepared in advance is your major incident response plan. So I'm saying incident response because most organisations would experience that, which is impactful at a local level. It's the loss of their local IT or their the power to their building. It's not something that goes beyond the organisation. So for me, the thing that is uh, goes beyond the organisation is the crisis event. And the crisis event is something that impacts a geographic area, impacts multiple organisations, normally has some kind of multi-agency external response to that fire brigade, police, bomb squad, whatever it happens to be. And the problem there is that there's no real end position. You don't know how long this is going to last. You have very little control over that situation. It's very difficult to get information and to understand the timelines that the external agencies are working to. And if you if this goes on for too long, it could actually threaten the existence of the organisation. So I would throw into that, you know, the events that seriously damage an organisation's reputation. So we think about BP as the classic, you know, Deepwater Horizon uh, example. The drop in share value between BP and Shell has never been recovered. They now track each other, but if you were to compare Shell against BP today, that gap that opened up at that point when uh, their CEO said, I want to get my life back, that has never been recovered. So Richard was able to shed some light on the specifics of crisis as a term. We've tried to avoid using it interchangeably with words like incident and disruption because, depending on who you ask, there are small but important variations between them. For Richard, a large part of what makes a crisis a crisis is scope, something that reaches beyond the boundaries of an individual organisation. It could be localised to a geography or it could be an event with a lot of PR fallout. So the organisation that I've just left, which is a a major US bank, their culture is early escalation. 
and they have a concept of a near miss. They would rather have something escalate and then be categorized afterwards as a near miss rather than have that develop into something that is more significant. And culturally, they do that. So they're very quick to pull the trigger in terms of escalation. Working with some other organizations, culturally, they're quite reluctant to do that. And it gets into this thing about, I'm not being seen to control the situation if I escalate it. And that comes from a cultural thing. And that is both within an organization and across countries. So, um, you know, if you think about the Far East, for example, there um, it's far more hierarchical and um, people tend to say yes, or they tend to play things down, even though it's quite major. And whilst it's very valid to say, right, we are going to wait until we get some more information before we make a decision, actually, in many situations, that makes it worse because you never have complete information, so you could wait forever. I like that sense of permission that Richard was advocating, that crisis escalation wasn't about exhaustive proof, but rather precautionary vigilance. However, it's worth noting that once escalation procedures have begun, it's a good idea to maintain them until you're certain the risks have resolved themselves. So the example I would give you, um, the Docklands bomb, when that went off, uh, I was working for a recovery provider at the time. We had one organisation that put us on standby five times. On standby, off standby. They just couldn't make up their minds. So the bomb went off at one minute past seven on a Friday night. So over that weekend, over the next 48 hours, they couldn't make up their mind whether they were going to invoke for Monday morning or not. So that, to me, is poor leadership and them failing to understand, well, actually, we would be better off invoking it and putting people at the recovery site and splitting our resources. They saw that as a problem, but actually, given the events, it would have been much better for them to have called it early. And, and that's the advice that I always give to people. If you think it's going to be that impactful to your organisation, then get IT down there, get the site ready, get some key staff down there. You've not lost anything. All you've done is exercised your plan. But it means that you now have capability in position and ready to go should the event actually turn on the really negative side as opposed to what you're hoping for, which is it will turn onto the positive side. Here again, it's an interesting perspective to get from someone who's seen organisations manage incidents from both sides of the fence, doing it himself and being instructed as the vendor. The worst thing that happens if you escalate early is the crisis never fully materialises and that you've exercised your continuity plan but you have to commit through the escalation. Otherwise, you just sit in limbo with the potential to actually cause disruption or downtime through inaction. In Richard's opinion, the ability to execute stems from the culture of the organization and the level of continuity maturity. Mature BC functions can make tough decisions quickly because they're prepared and ready to commit to a known course of action. It's the newcomers that haven't tested enough that are often reluctant to escalate and get stuck as a result. Most senior managers are very reluctant to see the plans invoked because they don't completely trust them. And that comes the fact that most organisations or many organisations fail to test adequately. And it's not until you've done the big test, as I've described, where you've proved to the whole organisation, well, actually, you can do it, that senior management suddenly get comfortable with that and go, yeah, that's fine. So unless you do lots and lots of drills. So uh, again, the, the organisation that I was working for until quite recently, in 2016, we did 50 recovery exercises with over a thousand participants. So that gives you an idea of the level of commitment from the organisation to make sure that 
absolutely everyone knows what they're doing, they know where to go, they know how to log on and they can work. Yeah. Uh, because you can't do 50 weeks worth of testing with a thousand people and lose that amount of productivity. They have to be able to do BAU work. This is not going down to a location and just logging on and going, oh yeah, I can get to this website. This is people doing genuine BAU activity as part of the validation of the recovery capability. Those organizations that have got a more mature program and have got the confidence that their testing has proved the capability will go, okay, let's invoke. Those organizations that feel the plans are a little bit flaky or haven't been tested sufficiently would see it as adding disruption to an already disruptive event. And therefore they're reluctant to invoke it. Confidence in your continuity plans and the degree to which you're able to commit to early and sustained escalation ultimately depends on the flow of accurate information around your organization. Like so much of crisis management, this doesn't happen organically. It's the result of careful monitoring processes and early warning systems. You have your, your early warning systems, so you, know, you should have your business management system, which is monitoring the infrastructure of your building. So that should be telling you something. You should have on the IT side, the various tools that you would have to check that your network's up. Um, if you have a security team, you know, they should be monitoring your CCTV. And then if you're more mature, then you should be monitoring other sources as well. So an organization like JP Morgan have very sophisticated command centers that are monitoring all the news feeds constantly. And then obviously with the cyber threat these days, IT teams should have somebody at least that's monitoring the, the cyber threat landscape as that evolves and picks up on whether there's you know, a WannaCry that's just popped up uh, to give you that kind of threat scanning. Together, all of those systems represent a mature and modern business continuity function. But going back to the start of Richard's career, during his time working for London Buses, continuity wasn't always so sophisticated. Well, my interest is archaeology, so I actually trained as a archaeologist, but then decided he didn't pay any money. So I got a proper job with uh, London Transport, and uh, during a 10-year period through the 80s, ended up as the IT infrastructure manager for London Buses, working on a massive project which computerised 63 bus garages and built 20 mini data centres spread across the whole geography of London. Um, during that time, a, a thing called the IBM PC was launched. So um, 1982, I was one of the first people in the UK to get my hands on an IBM PC. And my kind of knowledge and experience spread from that point. We realized when we were computerizing the bus garages that things could go wrong with technology. Because you have to remember, particularly in the 80s, technology wasn't as reliable as it is today. You know, disk drives would crash on a fairly regular basis. So somebody said to me, Richard, um, you really need to write some recovery procedures for all of this. I went, yeah, that's a good point. And I was working on that uh, in November 1987 when we had the hurricane here in London. So I had 35 sites live at the time. I'd lost 30 of them. Uh, I was at my parents' house near Bromley and at 5 a.m. in the morning, I realized there was one hell of a problem because of the number of trees that were down in our road. So I literally drove from South London into St. James's Park and it was like War of the World. So the power had gone across two thirds of London. Bromley in that area was particularly badly hit. So there's trees down everywhere. I had to drive up on the pavement in different places. Uh, all the traffic lights were out. There was scaffolding and other debris spread all over the road, bins, you name it. it the whole place had been blitzed. 
so I got into um, St. James's Park and uh, ran the recovery on a whiteboard. So I put, put my 35 sites down the left-hand side. And then I was lucky in the sense that we had trainers out in the field. And once they got to bus garages, they got onto the radio network because all the phones were out. And they, they reported in their status and then asked for instruction about what to do. So by this point, I was in St. James's Park. I had the copy of the procedures, which we then quickly photocopied. And then we were feeding that back out. It might not sound like it, but Richard had a stroke of luck here. The best people were in place to respond and manage that recovery. We often talk about writing recovery plans in terms of their usability. Anyone should be able to pick them up and follow them by virtue of their clarity and the degree to which they've been exercised. But as Richard went on to mention, there are usually a group of people within an organisation for whom recovery is instinctual and plans are just a formality. If your A-team, as Richard calls them, are around, then you really don't need a plan because their collective experience already represents the decisions you'd formalise into official processes later on. Instead, the reason to plan is for when your A-team inevitably becomes too busy or dispersed to replicate that natural response at scale. If you have your A-team available, i.e. your, your experts, your specialists, the people that really know how this stuff works, you don't really need a plan. The problem you have is that if they're not available that day and you've got the B-team, because the B-team might only have a part of the picture, they don't see the whole picture, and they may well then make some judgment calls which are contradictory to what the A-team would do. So that's why they need a plan and that's why the plan should be meaningful and have sufficient detail in it to give that level of guidance to the B-team. And I once did an exercise just to prove the point. So um, within this organisation, they had the primaries on the crisis management team and they had the deputies. So in the morning, I ran an exercise just with the primaries and in the afternoon, I ran the same exercise again with just the deputies. Because normally when you organise these events, you get a mixture of the two. But I deliberately set it up so that they weren't allowed to do that. And when we looked at it, the decisions that were made by the team in the morning were the complete opposite of the ones that were done in the afternoon. And the reason for that is the ones in the, in the morning, the primaries, they were far less cautious than the deputies. Okay, so they weren't making like wildly harmful decisions, it's just they weren't, they no. weren't going far enough. Yes, there were some decision points. And I have to say, there are no right and wrongs in any of this, right? It's, you just make a series of decisions. So you can't say that one is more valid than the other because it's very hard to measure lost opportunities and things like that. But in terms of the quality of the recovery and the way that that was run, there was a better set of decisions by the primaries, of course, than there was the alternates because they were more cautious. But it gave us an opportunity then to bring that result back to everybody mm. and say, this is what I suspected, this is what's been demonstrated. What can we now do in terms of enhancing capability? And the answer was to make the deputies more aware of the kind of things that their, their primary was thinking of, mm. much of which was undocumented. We're going to end on two recovery stories from Richard that both feature the same stroke of particularly bad luck. A crisis at the designated recovery site. The first is an especially complex situation as a work area recovery provider attempts to recover its own systems and staff while providing that same service to its customers, one of which has already suffered multiple location changes. It's a great example of a deeply practical response in the face of seemingly endless complexity. 
I was in a situation which is almost unique as far as I'm aware, was that I was working for Semigroup Recovery Services uh, when we had our recovery site in Docklands blown up. So I think it's the only recovery site in the world that's ever been blown up, but I was working for that company at the time. And uh, with that one, two interesting pieces. One uh, is that the, the insurance claim on it took 18 months to settle, so we couldn't use the building for 18 months. So even if people have got insurance, they should think about it won't pay out in a couple of weeks. It could pay out in a very long period of time. So therefore, they need to think about alternative premises and where they're going to function from. And the other thing I was going to bring out that particular incident was the fact that we had uh, a couple of clients, one of whom had signed uh, a contract with us the week before the bomb went off and they got blown up. And the other one... This was the second time that they'd been blown up with one bomb. They moved to Docklands and they got blown up by the second one. And the amazing thing there was they just repeated what they did a few weeks previous to that. The company that had only signed the contract one week before pulled all their staff to the recovery site on the Monday morning and everyone was kind of standing around looking at each other. So I went along and introduced myself to the CEO and explained that I was the, the head of consulting. I said, would you like some assistance just sorting out what you need to do? Because I didn't have a plan. So he said, oh, that would be great. Thank you very much. So I said, well, the first thing we need to do is to work out how many staff you actually need here because most of them are just drinking coffee at the moment and chatting about what happened on Friday night. These might just seem like small points of advice and guidance here from Richard, but actually they really show what the realities are in a recovery situation and how some simple direction, focusing on the most important recovery steps, make a big difference in getting you up and running quickly. Namely, prioritising the critical operations required by the business at any given moment. And we ended up sending everybody home apart from the postroom people because what they needed was their post. So they needed to do a redirection from the post office that then needed to be sorted so that the following day they could then bring some staff in to then start exercising their business process. Also, of course, they needed to build their technology out. So the poor IT folks were getting pulled from, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? And were not concentrating on getting their IT service actually back up. So it gave them a clear run at it um, whilst working out what was the sequence of activity that was needed to bring the business process up. So I worked with them for the first sort of three or four days. And after that, they were then into BAU. In fact, they sat at the site for four months. It was just, you know, BAU by that point. In this case, sending everyone home and bringing on one department at a time enabled each team to perform critical recovery tasks without interruption from non-essential requests. We're going to finish up with Richard's second recovery story now. This time, a mix of tremendous bad luck and small incremental inconsistencies that culminated in a critical recovery site failure. We took two invaluable pieces of crisis avoidance advice from this story. One, that good change management practices can prevent bad situations from quickly getting worse. And two, don't forget to check your generators. So this is a, an interesting example of what happens um, with unintended consequences. Let's start off with the scenario, you have a production site, you have a DR site that is backing it up. So the, the DR site is provided by a third party and they provide a secure infrastructure. Uh, they have generators, they have UPS, and they have diverse routing. So on this particular day, the local water board or whoever decided to dig up the road 
and would you believe it, they hit the one point where the diverse routing for the power came together. There were two cables, but they were next to each other in the same trench. And guess where they dug? Straight through that point. So your diverse routing counted for nothing because it wasn't fully diverse. It was just in physically separate cables. Not a problem, you would think, because you have your generators, except the generators didn't kick in. Now, generators are notoriously fickle things. I, through my career, I spent more time dealing with jennies that failed to fire up at the point you needed them um, than I've had hot dinners. So um, that's why people really do need a uh, effective, regular uh, maintenance uh, program and testing program for their generators. And in my opinion, you should do a full load test at least annually. It doesn't guarantee it because it's a mechanical device Anything that's mechanical can go wrong right at the point you need it. Right at the moment you want to use it, it just doesn't work. And you're kicking it and kicking it and it just doesn't work. So now we have the situation where we have um, the power gone. So everything's on the UPS. So at this point, our computer operations center spotted that everything's now running on UPS because we've got a building alert. So we know there's a problem, but we're thinking, well, that's okay, they'll sort the generators out. So we put the call into them. So um, now we're aware that, oh, we're on UPS and ah, oh, the generators aren't working and that means we have potentially the life of the UPS to sort things out. With any IT system, the most important thing is to have a clean shutdown. The decision was made by the bank to shut everything down, which was a correct decision because that meant that there was sufficient power there to bring everything down, so it was a clean position. But um, unfortunately, whilst they went through that process, there was insufficient time to get everything down. And then it got into a state, uh, because it was an active-active configuration, where as the uh, power was lost at the DR site, the active-active configuration pulled down the production system at the same time. Um, now that shouldn't happen because it should be configured in such a way that you could never have the, the B node pulling the A node down. But upon investigation subsequently, there were almost 50 unknown dependencies between the Bs and the As that shouldn't have been there. But because of um, inadequate change management as changes were put through with operating system upgrades and, ver and new versions of middleware and stuff like that, all these things have been not quite completed and the effect of that with an unstable power situation was basically to crash both pieces. Now we're talking about an event which should only have impacted the DR site but is now has impacted production at a different location. Fortunately it was towards the end of the day and the main cutoffs had actually passed and because we're talking about a data center for a global bank um, it meant that actually there was a period of time to get things sorted out. So from that perspective, it wasn't too bad, but it took a week to sort out the mess at the DR site. Basically, we, they, they ran for a week without any DR. So you can imagine the level of nervousness running for a week with no RD, DR protection at all, and everyone was just got on their knees and prayed that there was no incidents at the production location. Yeah. Thankfully, in this case, there were no further issues on the production side that week, so they had a lucky escape. Richard suffered these issues at a major bank with significant investment in their IT and their business continuity management. It's clear that this can happen to any of us, but hopefully what's also clear is that 
some sensible planning and management have, in every case, improved the organization's ability to respond and saved them from major fallout. Not every business needs the level of management that the banks and the public sector services have, but applying these principles on a smaller scale will still have significant results. Thank you.